Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. So in 1854, a pastor named Robert Irvine, he preached a sermon at his church in uh, Hamilton, and the sermon was called Evil in the City. Okay, this is 1854. Just by way of context, Hamilton is in the middle of a cholera pandemic. Really hard time for Hamilton. Well, here's what Pastor Irvine said in that sermon. He said, when God visits our city with commercial embarrassment, with pestilence or famine or plague or sickness or death, are we to regard such evils as merely accidental? Ought we not rather to seek the provoking cause of such calamities in the drunkenness and blasphemy and licentiousness and Sabbath-breaking and dishonesty and public and private vice of our inhabitants? He says, The Christian who reads and believes his Bible must and will trace the judgments of God which abound among us as readily to the sins of the people as God traced the judgments which he sent upon Sodom and Gomorrah to the impieties of their ungodly inhabitants. I don't know if you caught that, but what what this pastor is saying is that the troubles in Hamilton in those days are just as much God's judgment on the city because of things like drunkenness and blasphemy and breaking the Sabbath. And it's God's judgment on the city for those things just as much as what happened in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah was God's judgment on them. Now, I don't know whether you agree with him or not. I I don't. I don't think so. But um, when I read that, the thing is, I can't tell whether he's grieved about it or if he's kind of kind of glad that he's like that he's right. You know, like if I could text him during that sermon, I would ask him, "Yeah, but but pastor, shouldn't we pray for Hamilton?" Like, have you, have you, have we lost all hope? Shouldn't we ask God for mercy on the city? And I, I'm actually not sure what he would say. In fact, I've read that sermon through more than three times. And as I read it, I don't hear hope. Okay, I don't hear a love for the city. I hear him saying, this is what we told you would happen. But you didn't repent. I wonder what you think of that. Well, we're almost through our series, No Justice, No Peace, Amos Speaks to the City. Each week, the prophet Amos has been showing us how serious the situation has become for God's people. And it's, it's, it's like this, like there's just no peace because there's no justice. And so when we say no justice, no peace, that's not just a modern, you know, like protest cry. That's not just a cry of, of, of activists. It's actually like this ancient promise Like, unless you commit to doing justice, don't expect there to be peace. Well, you may have heard of Desmond Tutu. He was an Anglican bishop, and he was really troubled by the the, the racial segregation of South Africa, and he, he did justice. Desmond Tutu said, There is no peace because there's no justice. There can be no real peace and security until there is first justice enjoyed by all the inhabitants of this beautiful land. Now Desmond Tutu would go on and he would be an instrumental uh, influence in ending apartheid. He did justice. About a century earlier, 
a man named Frederick Douglass in the United States, he was an escaped slave. And he said that where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails, and where any one class is made to feel that society is an organized conspiracy to oppress and rob and degrade them, neither persons nor property will be safe. Well, Frederick Douglass would go on and he would become one of the main abolitionist voices in the United States. Slavery would end in part because of his influence. Again, this is a guy who did justice. Okay? Again, no justice, no peace means that insofar as God's people are committed to doing justice, that to that degree we'll enjoy peace. That's what we've been talking about. Now, this is our second last message in this book. Um, I would draw your attention to the phone number that's on the screen there again. That's there so that you can text in questions as we go along. But today, the problem at the end of Amos is that sometimes it, it seems like it's too late for justice. Okay, sometimes it's just too late. And so at this point, we ask, what do God's people do when it seems like it's too late to do anything? Like, what do we do when it seems pretty clear that, as far as we can tell, the city's doomed? Well, there is an answer for us in this morning's text, but we need to ask it a few more questions. So here's where we're going today. First, we're going to ask, how bad had things gotten in Israel? Then we're going to ask, what would Amos do about it? Third, did it work? And then lastly, we're going to ask, is there any hope for Hamilton? So let's get started and ask, how bad were things in Israel? Now, we'll kind of recap a little bit, but as as the book of Amos approaches its end, it's become quite clear, I think, that Israel loves things more than people. Israel loves things more than people. And in this morning's passage, we are told by the prophet that the the the, the shopkeepers, the the business people, uh, they skimp on their measures. Like you imagine that we're at a marketplace and you've got a bunch of shopkeepers who are selling, you know, wheat and grain and stuff where they're selling, they're selling a bag that's say like four fifths full, but they're charging full price and they've boosted the prices. They've, they're using dishonest scales. So for example, if you ask for like a hundred grams of wheat, well, their scale is rigged in order to say that it's a, there's 100 grams here, but it's actually only like 80 or 90 grams. Well, Amos calls this cheating. In fact, these people are so greedy that they will, when nobody's around, they'll sweep up the dust and the chaff from the floor of the shop. They'll dump it into the sack of wheat. And then they're going to charge the same price for this garbage wheat. So somebody coming in off the street is going to, and asks for a sack of wheat, they're going to pay the regular price for this wheat that's mixed with the sweepings of the shop that other people would pay the same amount for, for just really pure, good wheat. That's really dishonest, don't you think? Don't you think? Well, here's how bad things are, as if that wasn't bad enough. Here's how bad things are in Israel at the time. If you want to buy a person, if you want to buy a human being, Okay, all you need is a bit of silver or just an extra pair of sandals, the passage says. That's what the prophet tells us. People are being bought and sold for a pair of sandals. That's the value of human life at this point, okay? That's who Israel has become at this point. They're greedy, they're corrupt, they're dishonest, they're robbing the poor, 
And as a consequence, God warns them that judgment is coming in this in the form of a famine. Okay? Not a famine of, of food or, or water, but a famine of the very word of God. Now come come forward with me a little bit to verses eleven and twelve. Here, the prophet says that people will stagger from sea to sea and wander from the north to the east, searching for the word of the Lord, and they will not find it. So there's this this famine of God's word. And you you should think, you know, we should pause and think for a minute. How corrupt does a city have to become? Okay, how corrupt do God's people have to become for God to say, that they are better off not having his word in the first place than to have his word and reject it. Okay, how how bad do things have to be from God's point of view for him to withdraw his word altogether? Well, that's what Amos sees here. He sees judgment for Israel. Okay, and as we come to the to the end of this book, there's this series of visions that show the consequences for Israel's uh, rebellion and sin and corruption. Okay, it has it's a series of visions of how Israel is going to end. One of those visions at the beginning of chapter seven is a vision of a swarm of locusts, and those locusts come in and devour everything. Well, another one of those visions is of, of a wildfire that burns up everything. There's another vision of a of what's called a plumb line. If you don't know what that is, that's an old ancient tool that uh, it's a there's the sort of this bobber that hangs at the end of a string, and it uh, it always gives you a straight vertical edge. And the plumb line is a picture of how God is going to flatten and hammer down the parts of His household that stick out and cause problems. Well, another vision uh, is of a basket of ripe fruit. That's at the beginning of chapter eight. Ripe fruit because the the time is ripe for judgment. The last vision that we get is a vision of God himself. It's like Amos sees God standing in the temple at Jerusalem, kind of standing beside the altar where the sacrifices are are offered, and the and the, and in his vision, God calls for the temple to be brought down, like smash the pillars, smash the thresholds bring the thing down, destroy the temple while God is standing inside it. So as far as Amos can tell, these visions mean that it is, it is too late for Israel. This is God announcing the, like just the total destruction of everything and everyone. Like this is, this is the end, it seems. And we should ask, how does Amos feel about it? What's Amos going to do? How does he feel about it? That's actually a really important question. Before I answer, I want to pause and think on this for a second. You know, you can learn a lot about a person by watching how they respond when other people are suffering. Like you can tell a lot about a person of faith by what they do when they don't know what to do for others. And so some are going to, you know, fold their arms and they'll sit down and maybe gloat and kind of kick back and go like, "Mm -hmm, I told them. I told them this would happen. Here we are. Well, that's not Amos's response here. Some are going to walk away. Okay? Some are they're, they're pretty sure that they know better than God what he should be doing in a situation like this. And because God doesn't behave the way that they want him to, you know, they they'll bail. They'll walk away. Well, that's not Amos either. Some people are going to keep on preaching. They're going to go like 
okay, guys, I'm telling you, just to be clear, given our considerable, you know, study of these things, it's very clear to us that this is God's punishment because of your greed and your pride and your corruption and stuff. I mean, what other cause could there possibly be? And so they'll, they'll, they'll pre preach and explain and moralize. Now, that's not the most helpful action to take for somebody at this moment, but certainly it happens. It seems to me that's Pastor Irvine's approach, but that's not what Amos is going to do. Let's see what Amos does when it seems like it's too late, okay? Come back with me to the start of chapter 7, uh, if you would. Here we see uh, there's a couple of these visions that if we can pay close attention to Amos's response to these visions, it's really, really helpful and interesting. One of those visions, if you remember, was of a plague of locusts. Now, I don't, I don't know if you know what locusts are. They're like giant grasshoppers that fly in in a swarm and they'll eat an entire wheat crop in a couple of days and they'll move on and leave no food for anyone. And after this vision, we read that Amos said, uh, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So so that's what he does. Like, do, do you hear that? Like, this is Amos praying. For his people. He's begging God for mercy for his people, asking God to forgive on the basis of the fact that not it's not how great uh, his people are, but because of how small his people are. In the next vision, it's a, it's a fire that dries up the ocean and it burns up all the land. And after Amos sees this vision, he cries out again, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. This is chapter 7, verse 5. Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. Do you see again, Amos is grieved. He's moved with compassion and concern for his people. He's pleading with God to have mercy and to forgive uh, his people. He's, he, he knows it's too late. He doesn't have any basis on which to plead for God to spare Israel, except for the fact that his people are so small at this point. They're so weak, they couldn't possibly survive this. And so he prays, God, please forgive. We can't survive this. We are so few. And so if we can kind of learn from Amos's example here, then when it seems like things are really, really bad, when it seems like it's too late, the faithful are not people who gloat. The faithful are not people who walk away. We don't preach and moralize. But what, what we do when we don't know what to do, we pray. What we do when we don't know what to do is we pray. When we don't know what to do, we go to the one who does. That's what Amos does. Now, did it work? Like we have Amos praying for his people. We need to see how the rest of the story unfolds. If you don't know the story... Uh, after Amos dies, maybe about 20 years after the death of Amos, the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered. Okay, over a period of about 10 years, wave after wave of Assyrians come down, <clears throat> they demolish the cities, they pull down the temples, most of the Israelites are deported, and they're forced to walk more than like a thousand kilometers north to settle in places like Nineveh. Okay, now, I don't know if you can imagine what a thousand kilometers is like. A thousand kilometers is like walking from here to Quebec City and learning you've still got another 300 kilometers to go. All right. It's like walking from here to Washington, D.C. and learning you still have another 200 kilometers to go. 
So that's how far Israel has been deported from uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay. Now, after they settle in this new space, a lot of people think they never really left. They think that, uh, you know, when we talk about the lost tribes of Israel, the reason is because the Israelites stayed, they conformed, they adapted to the culture of Assyria. And a lot of people think that this is basically the end of Israel. Well, it's not quite, but a lot of people say that it is. Now, let's talk about what happened in the south. Now, if the northern kingdom is Israel, if you remember, the southern kingdom of Judah, let's talk about what happened there. Well, after about 150 years after the fall of Israel, it's Babylonians, not Assyrians, but Babylonians come in and they attack Judah and they level Jerusalem. They pull down the temple. Okay, like this is this is just the disaster of all disasters. And the people of Judah are deported to Babylon. And that's the beginning of a period called the exile. And the exile lasts about 70 years. Now we learn something very interesting. Uh, apparently, while the Assyrians were busy attacking Israel in the north, some of those Israelites escaped south uh, as refugees, they fled south into Judah. We know that because in some of the later descriptions of who's included in the people who went back after exile, it includes these people from the north who should not have been included if the if the northern kingdom was totally wiped out. And so, so what you've got is that years uh, after the conquest of Israel, when the people of Judah are in exile in Babylon, it's not just the people of Judah. It's a mixed group, it's people of Judah, plus this remnant of Israelites. And together, they know that it's too late. Here they are in exile, and they cry out to God anyway. And for 70 years, they pray, and they lament, and they grieve their sin, and they cry out to God from Babylon. And things change. Assyria and Babylon are conquered. Now the big power in the world is the Persians, and the Persians love the Jews, big fans of the Jews. And and so uh, the Israelites and the Judeans are allowed to go home and they rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, they restore the priesthood. And there is this massive revival that breaks out among God's people. And you know, it is, it's too bad that Amos didn't live to see the answer to his prayer, but it still happened. And I kind of wonder whether something like that might be on the verge of happening in our city. Like, don't you ever wonder, do you ever wonder, like, was God's, you know, salvation, was his rescue, is that just for other people? Like, is that just for Israel? Or is there is there some kind of hope for a like a divine rescue for our city? Is there, is there something like that in store? Is it possible that God has something like that in store for Hamilton? Well, you know, one of the worst times in the life of Hamilton was the 1850s. Terrible time. Those were terrible years. Hamilton had a lot of this this normal sorts of vices that you'd expect to find in a city. There was like a lot of drunkenness and there was organized crime and prostitution. There was corruption. The 1850s was a period where Hamilton went through 10 mayors in 10 years. And the city's uh, population tripled in size, but was not adding... Uh, you know, adequate sewers and, and roads and police to sort of keep up with the growth. And so it was this city that was just exploding in population, but it was kind of like the, the Wild West. 
okay, in that we didn't have these systems that were adequate for the needs of the city. But what made the 1850s really hard was a pandemic. Now, the pandemic we've been dealing with is COVID. It's, it wasn't that. It was cholera. Now, the cholera killed thousands of people in those days. And, and the city blamed cholera on Asians. Blamed cholera on Asians. It, it led to this huge sort of outcry to get rid of all immigrants and stop immigration altogether. What they didn't really understand at the time is that cholera isn't spread through contact with your neighbors so much as through contaminated water. Like you would get cholera by going to the water pump. There's one of like four wells downtown and people would line up and they would pump their water and they would take their water back home. And within a couple of days, entire households died because of this contaminated water. In fact, it's, it's estimated that from the 1830s to the 1850s, something like 20% of the city died, okay? So here we are in 1854 now, a, a bunch of the Protestant pastors, they see what's going on, they're moved with compassion for the city, and, and they write a letter to the mayor uh, asking the mayor to declare a day of fasting and prayer, and the mayor agrees, now, that's a really cool move on the, on the part of these pastors. So the mayor decides it's going to be August 2nd, 1854, and they're going to close down all the businesses. And so all of the shops and stores, all the businesses, all the offices, it's all, they're all closed. The only things that are open are the churches, and they are filled to capacity. Okay, it is this, it's an amazing opportunity. Now, the main gathering was at a church called Knox Church. It, it used to be at James North and Cannon. It's not there anymore. It's burned down since. Uh, what, it's, it's at the spot where there's a, there's a parking lot and a faux restaurant uh, in, in that spot. But at Knox Church, it was standing room only. And that's where Pastor Robert Irvine preached the sermon that I quoted earlier. He's got this captive, teachable audience. Standing room only. They are starving for encouragement and inspiration and a sense of hope that maybe things could possibly turn around. Here's his chance to, to give the people of the city some hope. Here's the words of comfort that Robert Irvine offered that day. He says, near the end of his message, he says that every affliction and every bereavement which has of late been sent among the families of this congregation and of the city were the result of design. And not only so, but they were needed. God has had some wise purpose to serve by laying his hand so severely on the city. There is some great end in view. What it is, God knoweth. But there is some great end in view in multiplying the widows and orphans of Hamilton. Do you hear that? Here's his chance to encourage and comfort the city. And Irvine's message is, you know what? God has his reasons for multiplying the widows and orphans of Hamilton. And you know, if I could, if I could text him during this sermon, again, I would just ask, mm, surely you can offer some hope for Hamilton though. Like, do you believe that it's too late for repentance? Do you believe that it's too late even to see revival? You know, things got worse. In March of 1857, there was a train that was coming from Toronto. It was crossing over the bridge over by Coots Paradise. It used to be called the Desjardins Canal. The bridge collapsed. 90 people were on board that train. And when it crashed into the canal below, 59 of them died. They were crushed 
drowned and frozen in the water. And that was kind of the last straw. Like, it kind of broke the city. You know what I mean? Like, that's when people finally gave up, and, and it was like it was too late. This was, like, this. Hamilton was this godforsaken city, and if you can leave, you should. Well, that's not the end of the story. A little later that year, some of the Methodist churches in town started to pray. And in September of 1857, there's this conference over in Georgetown, just about 40 minutes uh, east of here. And about 5,000 people get together to pray and to listen to an evangelist from New York. Her name was Phoebe Palmer. On her way home, Palmer is on the train and she realizes that her luggage had been lost. It got on the wrong train. And so Phoebe Palmer and her husband, they get off in Hamilton in order to wait for the train to catch up. Well, a couple of the Methodist pastors who had been at this same conference, they ask her, well, since you're here... What if you stick around for a few days and while you're waiting for your luggage to arrive, why not join us and speak at our prayer meeting uh, as you wait for your luggage? And, and she says, yes. And so the first prayer meeting that they organized with Phoebe Palmer in Hamilton, it was August, sorry, it was October 9th, 1857. And it was a Friday. And 65 people meet in the basement of what's, what was at the time called McNabb Wesleyan Methodist Church. Uh, it's it's no longer there, but um, at McNabb Wesleyan Methodist Church's church, 65 people meet in the basement. By the end of the meeting, 21 of those 65 people, 21 of them come forward to put their faith in Jesus who re- because they realize they actually hadn't before. All of this time, they'd been sort of self-deceived. Well, Palmer preaches again the next day. It's a Saturday. 20 more people give their lives to Christ. The next day, on it's a Sunday, they have another huge gathering in the basement there. Another 35 people come forward to give their lives to Christ. Well, by the end of the weekend, word spreads. People are coming from all over, all over the city in order to pray at McNabb Wesleyan Methodist Church and the other Methodist churches. They're gathering, standing room only in these churches. And um, they're praying from 7 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. And after 10 days like this, under the teaching of Phoebe Palmer, under this, these, this constant sort of festival of prayer, 400 people in Hamilton had given their lives to Christ, who hadn't before. 400 people, okay, have come forward, have given their lives to Christ, including the mayor of the city. This was revival. Historians call this period the Third Great Awakening. Okay, it's, and, it's, and it started here in Hamilton. The Methodist churches uh, of the day, they grew by about a thousand percent. The movement spreads all over the world. As it gets to the U.S., uh, it helps helps people abolish slavery once and for all. As it spreads to London, England, the result is the creation of the Salvation Army. And from what I could read, like more than a thousand prostitutes uh, give their lives to Christ uh, in London, England, when the when this third great awakening reaches there. When it spread to Ireland and Wales uh, after eighteen fifty seven, as it as it spread to Ireland and Wales, a couple of years later in eighteen sixty, there were no crimes reported in Ireland and Wales. Let me say that again: when the third great awakening spread to Ireland and Wales, there were no crimes reported in eighteen sixty. Meanwhile, back in Knox Church downtown, 
where Robert Irvine was teaching, they weren't affected by the revival at all. Like there was no discernible effect at all. Now, part of the reason that we started this series in Amos is because we need to see that God cares a great deal what happens in a city. Okay, and we've we've seen that. We've seen that God is even grieved and offended by a lot of the things happening in our city right now. He is. And, and it actually really matters how his people respond to it. And as we get close to the end of this study, as we approach the end of the book of Amos, what we want to ask is, do we still believe there's hope for our city? Like, is there still hope for Hamilton? Or is it just, is it easier to believe that it's just, it's just too late? So what I want to do as I close, just let me leave you with a few sort of thoughts and questions for us to take home. The first, I would just remind us, this is your city. This is your city. Maybe you never expected to be here. Maybe you found yourself here by accident because of school or like a work placement or something. That was certainly the Molesky's in 2004, by the way. I was born here, but um, we came back in 2004 because of Heather's work placement. And here we are, the rest is history. Maybe if you're honest, you hope that you're only here temporarily. It actually doesn't matter. Whatever the reason, it doesn't matter how or why you came or how long you think that you're going to be here because you're here. Okay, you are here. And until God takes you somewhere else, Hamilton is your home and you're his ambassador here. And I just want to ask us, are we going to live like it? Are we going to live like his ambassadors here? Or like, are we going to, are we going to be guests and visitors to the city? Are we just kind of passing through? Or what would it look like to decide once and for all to put down roots, to be an ambassador of Christ in the city? Second kind of thought here is is that even when it seems like it's too late, it's actually not too late. I mean, here we are in 2022. We're still navigating a pandemic of our own. At different times, COVID has shut the city down and it has actually cost a lot of lives. Not 20% like cholera, but still a lot of people. Like something like more than 15,000 people have died of COVID in Hamilton in these last few years. And as it has gone on, as this pandemic has gone on, and as the city has reacted, you know, there's been all kinds of evidence that Hamilton loves things more than people. Isn't that true? Haven't we seen that? There's all kinds of evidence that Hamilton loves things more than people. We see a lot of the same things that Amos saw in his day, and it's not too late for us. The story's not over. Now, here's an old photo of the the fountain in Gore Park. You probably don't recognize it in this form. It's gone through a few different restorations. Now, I don't know if you know this, some of the money that was donated during the revival of the 1850s helped to pay for better sewer systems and road systems and even a pump house on the east end of the city. And so when they uh, installed this Gore Park fountain, it was there to do a couple of things. First of all, it was to... Uh, honor and kind of commemorate the people who died from cholera because cholera was this thing that was passed through contaminated water and so now we've got this fountain that flows with fresh clean water and it's meant to to pay homage to those people who died from contaminated water but the fountain is there to do something else as well it's sort of a monument to the collaboration and cooperation of the city 
You know, when in a time when most of the city, even a, even a bunch of the, the churches, believed that it was too late for Hamilton, it actually wasn't. And a lot of people put their resources together, they put their heads together to kind of come up with a solution, and they, they did. They did. And I would just suggest, maybe I can leave this with you as a symbol. Like whenever you see the Gore Park Fountain as you're driving through downtown or as you're walking past it downtown on on a lunch break or something like that, when you see this fountain flowing with fresh, clean water, ask yourself, do I see any hope for Hamilton? Do I see hope for Hamilton? You know, there were a few who did in 1857. Do, Do you? Do do I? Well, the third question is, is simply this. Will we pray? Will we pray? I would just simply remind us here, even when it seemed like it was too late for Israel and, and Israel was beyond saving, the people prayed. Okay, there was a remnant who, who prayed and they survived and God saved the nation. In the 1850s, when a whole bunch of people thought that Hamilton was just toast, People prayed. There was a remnant of people who prayed and then God responded. God saved and he sent a revival that changed history. And I just kind of wonder what would it look like to translate hope for Hamilton into prayer for Hamilton? What if we are part of a remnant and it's our prayers that are the ones that are going to unlock revival? Maybe our prayers, maybe your prayers are going to unlock revival. I get it. Like, if that sounds crazy, if the, but just so you know, that's, it is no crazier to pray for revival in 2022 than praying for revival during exile in Babylon. Like, it's not crazier to pray for revival in 2022 in Hamilton than it was to pray for revival in Hamilton during a cholera pandemic. You know, we used to have a monthly prayer meeting in in my home. I think it was the first Wednesday of every month. Then, I don't know, a bunch of stuff happened. Our worship director moved away and I took over his workload and it totally fell off the table, totally fell off my radar. And that is on me, okay? Like classic, classic Molesky. Um, But it doesn't have to be me who leads this. It doesn't have to be on on my shoulders to make this happen. Uh, I mean, we have elders who pray for our city. We have a leadership team who prays for the city. The point isn't to be a church that has prayer meetings, okay? The point is to be a church that prays. And so I want to want to ask here, like, will we pray? Will we pray? Like, maybe it's going to be you with just a few friends or a few brothers and sisters from the church. Maybe it's going to be you praying around the table with your faith family. Maybe it's going to be you who God is kind of tapping you on the shoulder and asking you to gather some people uh, regularly for prayer on behalf of the city. Whatever that looks like, is it is it possible that, that maybe God is tapping you on the shoulder asking you to pray? Will we pray? What I'd like to do as I end is give the last word to Phoebe Palmer. One week after she arrived in Hamilton, she wrote a letter to a good friend of hers. Her name was Sarah. And she, Sarah lives in New York. And in her letter to Sarah, Phoebe Palmer said, you know, if we could tell you of what we are daily witnessing of God's wonder working power in sanctifying believers and saving sinners, you would be assured, Sarah, that your disappointment is God's appointment. Let me read that again. If we could tell you what we're witnessing of God's power, 
you would you would be assured that your disappointment is God's appointment. She goes on, she says, one week ago today, such a work commenced in Hamilton as has never been witnessed before. Just so soon as the church in Hamilton began to labor and travail for souls, just so soon and proportionately speedy were souls born into the kingdom of Christ. Wow, let's pray for that. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.